Master Tavern Keeper's History of the Old World. And so, finally, it is time to talk of the cursed Scarab Lord. Ah, yeah, yeah. Now, Master Tavernkeeper, this is not Ramhotep, is it? Ah, indeed, it is not. Ah, uh, are you all right, Heinrich? You seem a little, um... Ah, yeah, yeah. Bah, bah. I will be, I will be. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> My head is, uh spinning slightly from all of the uh, booze. Where are we at on the um, Imperial calendar, by the way? Whoa, Heinrich, he's down, he's down. You've still got to finish the tale of the return crossing of Marco Colombo and his taking of the reins of power in Trantio. But uh, in answer to your question, we are now 1,500 years before the start of the Imperial calendar. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, thank you. Perhaps I should have a uh, glass of, of water or something. Water? W water? I would recommend the uh, or something. There is no shorter route to death than drinking water, at least in the cities of men. Such uh, dirty, dangerous stuff. Instead, uh, well, there are always a few bottles of uh, Chimera shrub vinegar in every guest's room. You should be able to find some under your bed. Oh, yeah. Let me just check. Hmm. Ah, ah, yeah, yeah. So there are. You can uh, dilute it down with some of the snow from outside on the windowsill. A few slow glasses of that and you'll be right as rain. It's good for drinking and it's equally good for cleaning. A good home tip for you there. Anyway, I shall... Continue. After the death of Tutankhamun, a malaise set in amongst the denizens of the royal court of Numas, as the king, Arkan, battled with his grief. The vacuum left by the premature death of the heir gave an opportunity for others to dream of usurping the king. Amongst these potential pretenders to the throne was Apophis, a jealous prince who had long lusted after the crown of Numas and, inspired by the stories of the murder of Ramhotep and, who knows, like those assassins, perhaps heeding the whispers of the Dark Maiden herself, he decided to take matters into his own hands. Upon the anniversary of the assassination of the Scarab King, exactly 1,563 years before the beginning of the Imperial Calendar, the servants of Apophis were able to poison the wine of the palace with a sleeping draught, incapacitating all of the Sphinx Legion Guard. The prince then crept into the royal seat of power. Once inside, he slit the throats of the entire royal line, from the king, Arkan, down to his youngest infant nieces and nephews, 
whilst they lay in their beds. With this achieved, he then immediately proclaimed himself king. However, and this is a motif that you will see in the first war against Nagash as well, the people of Numas rebelled against the usurper, and those loyal to the murdered king Arkan broke into the throne room, subdued the crazed monarch, and dragged Apophis over to the temples for judgment to be laid upon him. For of all the crimes in Nehekara, the most heinous and reviled was regicide. I recall reading on a scroll of judgment, one that we use at the University of Null to practice our translating skills actually, that those who attempted to seize the throne were to be denied the privilege of mummification, and instead their bones were to be cast out to be fed upon by the carrion of the desert. The severity of this punishment meant the unthinkable to Nehekara nobles. They would be denied access to the land of the honoured dead and were instead consigned to either the terrible depths of the underworld or worse still, to complete and utter oblivion. However, for the high judges of Numas, even this was not enough. Instead, he was subjected to a special punishment for those who had raised their hand against the royal line, devised by Ramhotep himself many years before. Apophis was entombed alive within a sarcophagus filled with the sacred flesh-eating scarabs of Kepri. The prince's death screams resounded through the temple walls, striking fear into the hearts of each man and woman who heard them. Eventually, though, they stopped, and all became still. When the lid was opened, the sarcophagus was completely bare. No body, no blood, and no beetles. Only a skull picked clean of its flesh. Upon this, the priests of the mortuary cult inscribed a single magical hieroglyph, cursing Apophis's soul into the hands of Usilian himself, the god of the underworld. The skull was then thrown into the deep desert to be forgotten, and Apophis was claimed by Osirian to be tormented in perpetuity for his vile crime. However, it is believed by the nomads of the desert that, somehow, Apophis was able to strike a pact with Osirian. Of course, we have already talked about the danger of striking packs with the gods, and I would advise you to avoid it if you value your eternal soul. But Apophis was already damned, so truly, what did he have left to lose? Anyway, it is said that Apophis promised that, in exchange for his release, he would claim for the god another soul to stand in his stead, one that would perfectly balance his own on the scales of judgment. And to this, Usirian eagerly and immediately agreed. And so, Apophis was reborn as an entity known as the Cursed Scarab Lord.
The puffer's now acts like some sort of uh, supernatural assassin for Osillian as he uh, fruitlessly searches for someone to take his place in the netherworld and buy him his freedom. The first his victim will see is a swarm of beetles crawling upon the floor. From here, they will clamber up and over each other, flowing like an inverted waterfall, up from the ground until they coalesce into a black, writhing, fear-inducing, wraith-like figure. Apophis is no reanimated corpse, though, like the other Tomb Kings. Rather, he is a revenant of the desert, whose form is wholly composed of an undulating wave of scarabs. These are able to gain ingress through any nook and cranny, meaning that Apophis can reach his target irrespective of where they hide. Nowhere and no one is safe. And if you think that attack is the best form of defense, then think again. For even if you are able to land a blow upon Apophis, the insect bodies that constitute his form will simply flow to fill open wounds and regrow lost limbs. Or, at worst, he will simply burst apart into an explosion of chitinous wings before reforming whole and unheard once again. However, the scarabs that constitute his being are not solely passive creatures, and I have heard tales in which Apophis opened up his jaw to release a tide of insects to strip their flesh from his foes. Atop this writhing mass of insects sits all that remains of Apophis, his gleaming skull. He still wields the very same blade he used to slit the throats of the other members of the royal family of Numas and end the bloodline of Ramhotep, the Scarab King. Usulian forces Apophis to use this cursed blade to remind him of his crime and it still drips with the blood of his victims. Let us hope that none of us ever catches eye, for once marked, your damnation is all but guaranteed. Once his prey lies dead by his hand, he binds his target's soul into a mystical cage before returning to the underworld to be placed upon the scales and measured against Apophis's own. However, here is the nub of his endless task. For no two souls are equal, and the scales will never balance. His punishment will continue until the fire of Assyrian himself is extinguished, if such a thing is even possible. There, that is enough of Numas. There is much more, though. For example, I have not covered the fabled Imrathepis, the crimson king of Numas, and the general of Alcadizar the Conqueror. But the tale of these two is intertwined with the second coming of Nagash and the fall of Lamia, and we will come to him in due course. But before continuing either our look at the state of cities of Nehekara at the start of rebellion against the usurper, I do want to address something that may not have been obvious to some of you. I wish to talk about morality. My hope in telling these stories and vignettes is that you, dear neophytes, have begun to realize that the morals of the past are not the morals of today. That which was taboo is 
no longer, and that which is now taboo was not in the past. When we talk of history, we talk of events and the individuals involved, both their motivations and roles. But we do not pass judgment on them, for we cannot judge the past by the values of today. Their values, modes of thinking and prejudices are an unknown land to us. They did what they did, for good or ill. It is what it is, and nothing more. I would argue that they neither deserve our condemnation, nor our veneration. For we do not, and cannot, truly know them. As my old tutor once said, You can look at a map and see the lay of the land, but that is not the same as walking those hills and valleys. From afar, you know nothing. I also hope to disavow you of the notion of singular great individuals arising fully formed to change the world around them, completely seen in isolation from the society from whence they sprung. Each, from the greatest hero to the foulest villain, is but a product of the people and places in which they were born and raised. To be more specific, in Nehekara, the megalomania and esoteric experimentation of Nagash was no isolated case. He was one of many men who were meddling in forces that they did not understand, to tap into power that they could not control, and unleash sorcery that they should not have been able to, in order to achieve the ultimate goal of eternal life. Nagash was no fluke. He was simply the most cold-hearted and successful of them. But his outlook was not uncommon, for all of Nehekaran society was obsessed with cheating death, as if the shadow of the eventual fate that would befall them all had already captured their minds eons before it came to pass, and trapped them on the path to its actualization. Excuse me, Master Tavernkeeper. Ah, yes, Senior Apprentice Steiner, please. Well, you lent me your copy of the uh, Encyclopedia of the Undead earlier in the year. Ah, yes, by the much maligned J. Gotthard Milbert. A fantastic tome by a fascinating gentleman. Proscribed now in the Empire, of course. Oh, really? Well, my question pertains to something Melbert's raised in his lengthy prologue. In it, he argues that the hands of the gods had a part in the rise of Nagash, and he was merely the catalyst for the fate of the Tomb Kings, rather than its uh, originator and instigator. What, what do you think? Ah, yes, I recall the passage. But for the benefit of the other neophytes, let me just summarise what our erudite senior apprentice is referring to. Melbert stated that he believed the great necromancer was merely the tool of another hand. The hand of Usirion, perhaps, or the Dark Maiden, or even the Dark God, Nurgle. But, irrespective of who, someone who wished to censure the Nehekaran people for their arrogance in thinking they could step outside of the circle of life and death. Nagash was but a way to punish the people of Nehekara with a twisted version of their heart's desire life without death, in order to send a message to the rest of the world to not meddle 
with the natural order of things. I think it is a very interesting theory, but I have no idea if it is true or not, and there is no way to verify it one way or the other. If true, though, it has been most successful, for no nation has pursued so singularly eternal life as the Nehekarans did. And those that do walk that path, by which I mean necromancers, are pariahs in every society they exist in. Although a downside is this. By empowering one such as Nagash, the god responsible, whoever it was, has created something beyond their control that they will no doubt come to regret. However, this entire line of reasoning is pure conjecture, unless Melbert knew something that he did not write in his exhaustive encyclopedia. Alas, we'll never know, as any of the secrets he had went up in smoke when he was burnt to death by the witch hunters of the Empire. I'm sorry, I cannot add any more information than that, senior apprentice. Ah, no, thank you for answering my question. My pleasure, and I am glad to see you have been reading it. Well, when we finally get back to the tale of Luther Harkin and the vampires of Lamia, which is how we fell into this particular rabbit hole that we've become lost in, I think you will see the origins of many entities and individuals mentioned in the encyclopedia. However, the road to the fall of Lamia is yet long. Let us get cracking. Next, it is finally time to turn our eyes to the dusty city of Zandri, the fleet port from which the power of the Tomb Kings has reached out across the oceans and changed the fate and histories of many a realm.